Hello and welcome to Life of Brian, dot, 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 Maddox. That is the podcast that asks lots of questions and gives you absolutely no answers, as you'll find out as we welcome Brian Maddox. Hello, Brian. Hello, Kevin, and uh, hello to those listening, and hello to me. I don't know why I say that. Look, and a special hello to those people not listening, because you're very important to us. (laughs) Yeah, well, you people not listening just piss right off. Yeah, exactly. get stuffed. We're glad you're not here, because you're bloody annoying, and we we don't like it, and we've got two very good guests, and we don't want to share them with people who aren't listening, so there. No, they can all go get stuffed. Exactly. (laughs) Toddy Goldsmith has been a very good friend of yours for a very long time and she's a wonderful human being and she is on the show. She's fantastic. She's um, got so much bubbly energy and um, she's just always fun to be around and, um, yeah, she's a great girl. I think she's fantastic. Backstage secrets from the life of Brian. Yeah. Make-up yes. secrets from the life of Brian. How Toddy Goldsmith mm. tamed not only Brian but... Renee Gayer, the late great Renee Gayer. Uh, you're going to hear yes, about all indeed. that and uh, and mm. some things she's up to. We caught her as she was just about to head off uh, uh, Barramundi fishing. Well, not exactly, but off on a <laughs> off on an adventure in uh, in the Northern Territory, uh, emceeing an event, uh, a fishing event up there. So we had a little bit of a talk to her about that, amongst a whole lot of other things too. So that's coming up. And our other mm. guest is Jesse Colin Young. Now you'll know the song "Get Together" by the Young Bloods was a massive, massive hit. In the late part of the 60s, one of those peace, love, harmony, you know, songs. So Jesse's been Ooh. making music since then and uh, and very good music. So I'm going to play uh, Get Together and have a chat to him as well. And, of course, oh. Brian, yes. we're going to play one of your songs that we've dragged out of the, uh, the Brian Mannix archives, <laughs> which sound like this. We've done that. We've popped one out. We've, oh, we've popped one out. Okay, we've popped one enough. out. Uh, one we one you prepared earlier, uh, and you'll tell mm-hmm. us the story behind that song later in the in the in the program. I will indeed. But I now, will indeed, mm-hmm. our very good friends at Murcotts have oh. a message for everybody. Well, what's the message, Kev? The message is that driving a motor vehicle is an enormous responsibility. You should take it seriously. You should not take it for granted, and you should be as good a driver behind the wheel as you can possibly be, and they can help you. They are the best at helping you. They taught me to be a Grand Prix driver in 1985, and I still know my racing lines and that. So, um, no, they're great people, and it's a it's a really, really good uh, uh, course, I suppose you'd call it. Yep, Would you it call is. it a course? Yeah, it's an educational yeah. course. And you know the funny thing about that is that stayed in your head. The stuff that you learnt in, in, back in 1985, it stays in your head and it becomes just the way you go about doing it. It becomes, you know, that sort of repeat uh, uh, process that you do uh, and you become a better driver because of it. So give them a call. Well, yeah. Well, I think the, um, yeah, one triple five five seven six. Let's say that number again, Kev. One three hundred triple five five seven six. Punch it into your phone. Get on All right. Have a chat. Jump on the website if you need to, mercots.edu.au, and be a better driver because the responsibilities and every day you hear the news or pick up the papers or go online and you read about accidents that happen that could not easily have been avoided but surely could have been avoided if you're a better driver. 
Exactly right, Kev, and um, there's no time like now to give them a call. Exactly. All right, let's get to our first guest. It's Toddy Goldsmith, and uh, we talked to Toddy about what she's up to. All right. Go, Todd. So, Fair Todd, enough. what are you up to, apart from the Barramundi fishing competition in the Northern Territory? What are you What are you doing these at the moment? Wow. It seems to be a very big time for me in the MC world. I've been doing quite a bit of MCing and getting up and singing with whatever band they have. And I'm working on a band with another woman, um, a duets show. Mm. And um, why am I so busy? I'm just constantly... Constantly busy. Did you I'm want just, it? Do you want to be or you don't want to I be? I love being busy. I yeah. love it. I mean, I need my downtime. I go up and see my daughter. She lives up regionally in at the base of Falls Creek. So I go up there and see her and I I do get away. Like I'm good at doing that and I meditate and do all that sort of thing. But I, I love it. I love having a sense of purpose. And, of course, I do all this stuff for Olivia's Hospital because now that she's left us, um, me being more hands-on is more important. Yeah. So what does that involve, Todd, for the Olivia Foundation? Well, what it's, you sort of well it's actually the, the wellness centre that my focus is. The foundation's more than one in America and that's all about right. um, bringing in cannabis for, um, you know, for kind of treatments to patients yep. with cancer and research on cannabis and stuff, which hopefully will get over the line here. I know it's getting better but it's still really hard. I mean, when Olivia was in her darkest hour and dealing with nausea and extraordinary pain, that's what got her through. So I'm, I kind of work with John Easterling, her husband, and up there's a guy here that I talk to all the time about how I can be of help in that area. But basically with the Wellness Centre, we have a walk every year. And this year it's on October the 8th and I help raise funds through the year, but it's mainly geared towards the wellness walk. So right. this year, but she had just passed, she, she she passed in August, September, and then it was in October, so it was only two months, and I was petrified that people weren't going to come because she wasn't there. And it was really frightening and we actually got double the amount of people, raised double the amount, and I think it was people saying, we believe in what you do, Liv, and we've got you. And there's still a lot of people coming in and um, doing fundraising things. Like I hosted a Ferrari event during the Grand Prix and they passed me a $20,000 cheque at the end of the night from raising funds that night. So I'm relieved to say that her legacy will survive and thrive. And Chloe, Liv's daughter, is um, joined, like we're holding hands doing this and she's joined the team, so that's really good. So we're in touch a lot about things that we can do to help raise and keep, you know, the funds going for the Wellness Centre. Yeah. Do you know what the Wellness Centre is? Am I making any sense? Yeah, yeah. No, we know what that is. Yeah. A really important part of, of, of Melbourne, an important part of obviously, as you say, Olivia's legacy. Tough time for you the last sort of year, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's been an extraordinary amount of loss. I mean, apart from my dad the year before and my aunt recently, but just friends in our industry, Brizey. Like yeah. Lots. I'm just catching up with people one funeral after another. It's just been horrendous, really. So hopefully that's the end of it and there'll be a nice stretch of health and people doing amazing, abundant, joyful things and you know, you go through, I know everyone goes through it. It seems like you go through this phase of just continual 
lost, but losing Olivia was really tough, really, really tough. I, not because she's Olivia, but because she really stepped in as our mother, my brother and my sister and myself, and she's been a real mother figure and probably my best friend and work colleague because we worked together for 20 years on the Wellness Centre and, you know, so there's a huge gap, massive, massive hole in my life at the moment. Yeah. Uh, people go through this and we we just think about all the things that we had with that person and you feel them very strongly inside you and she's guiding yeah. me. So it's all, you know, it's as it's meant to be. Yeah. Did you see John Travolta at the Academy Awards? Oh, my God, how beautiful was that? He was so oh. upset. It was beautiful. It was great. He was really upset and I'm really glad that he saved that and he didn't do something for the memorial. I'm glad that it worked out that way. People kept going, why isn't John, why hasn't John done something and, you know, the people involved behind the scenes, why isn't John doing something? And I was very relieved, actually. I think it was poignant and perfect. And he yeah. was at a memorial in California that we all went to, the family memorial, and he's just beautiful and he's really he's really missing her. He's really loved loved her. They loved each other. So Yeah. Uh, you you well. wouldn't have been surprised though by the outpouring of, of emotion from people. That would have come as no surprise, I would have thought. Well it sort of didn't it didn't. It was um kind of you know everyone loves Liv, but you don't understand the scale and how much they impacted her. But I did I did a lot of interviews around that time and I, I said in one of them, I really understand the grief of let's use fans for the lack of a better word because when Lady Diana died, I felt like I'd lost someone and I we were all grieving and so I could really, really step into their shoes and understand what it meant even if they never met her, that people become part of your life and you listen to them and you see them and they're constantly in your world, whether it be in magazines or on television or your socials or whatever it is, and you resonate with that person or you have a deep feeling for that person. So I really got that. And that was actually tough having to get back to people because I knew they needed me too. But it was sometimes really comforting and at other times really overwhelming. But hopefully, I did an okay job of it. You know, yeah, the, the expectation of the press and the media and all that on on you and the family at that time—it's it's pretty. It is pretty um, overpowering at times, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But you know, I really let her lead. I just like when she first died, it just went crazy around me. And you know, I'm obviously the one in the family that's going to cop that because I've worked with her on so much and I and I have a profile, but mainly because of the work I've done with her with the hospital. And I just close my eyes and go, Liv, tell me what to do. Tell me who to talk to. Just lead me. And then I, it's not in my nature to say no to so many people, but I had to for my preservation and to not be overwhelmed with it. And I'm really glad I talked to Tracy Grimshaw the day after because she was just... Really beautiful, really, really beautiful, empathetic, soulful woman. And she'd met Liv. She'd done interviews. She was just perfect. I miss her on the television. Yeah. She's a very good interviewer. Yeah. Yeah, she was very good. And that's why she lasted so long, I guess. That's right. Because she, she was good at her gig. Yeah. Um, what's happening acting-wise? Are you doing any acting, Todd? 
Um, it's really slow. I mean, I did write, I started writing a series through lockdown and I've oh, yeah. 12 episodes of a show and I'm not yet ready to pitch it, but I kind of, when the whole Olivia thing happened and everything happened, I, I shelved it and I'm kind of getting that hunger to go back into it. And um, yeah. so I'll, I'll put my energy back into that, but at the moment I'm just trying to get a show up with an, yeah. another woman, we're at the ground. Like we've got the idea, we've got the songs we want to do, we're going to get sheet music, we've got to get stems, we've got to get all that stuff, and we've got a gig booked for the end of July. So we're working at Mimo Music Hall in Melbourne, so we're Good. working towards that. So I actually met her doing a gig at Mimo. We were put together and we didn't know each other and we just connected. So her name's Nina Feroz, so she's an amazing singer. Yeah, so, and a singing teacher, so she'll come in very handy for me. Nina sings at those three XY shows that we do, doesn't she? You know, when we do the, um, you know, they get a three XY chart down at Mimo, and we all do a song. Yes, yes, yes. She yeah, was Nina's. there, Pricey, the one we yeah, did. Yeah, that's right. And I did Mamma Mia with her. Yeah, she's yeah, terrific. That's her. Yeah. Yeah, she, she's great. She yes. can sing the shit out of anything. Yeah, she's oh, fantastic. Oh my god, can't she? So we're, so we're working on something together and, you know, there's just always stuff in the pipelines. So what, what can you tell us about the, the, the project with you and Nina? Can you tell us any details of what sort of songs you're going to do, what sort of show you're going to yeah, do? Yeah, well, it's kind of, it's very eclectic, but we were looking at all songs that you can sing as duets, women, woman to women and have male guests coming in, but it's predominantly us. And there's everything from Sunny and Sure. It takes two, right down to Jenny on the Block, you know, like everything from the 60s through to now where artists have got other artists up on stage in their live performances, invited them in, and I've just gone down the rabbit hole of YouTube and found the most fantastic songs and not your typical duets and some typical duets. And so um, we're kind of, yeah, we're working on them and it's really good fun doing it. And then we can rotate our male guests. So, Brizey, you'll be coming up with us. Oh, it'll keep the show fresh. And if we do bigger shows and people want to choose someone that's not on our list of mates, they're going to have to negotiate with them and bring them in and it'll be um, really, it'll be great fun, really good fun. So the first show, I can't even remember the date, but we're, it's in July, I think it's the 30th. So we're just, it's great to have something to work towards. So you've got to be ready by this date. So yeah. because she's, like, she's um, she's really good at all of the back-end stuff as well. And we've both had a lot of experience on the road. We know a lot of people in the industry. We know a lot of musos. We know how to do this. And um, it's kind of really good fun pulling it together. She's an, a fantastic woman. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, she's yeah. Great. And it's a TV show too, though, isn't it? Uh, is it? No, but it could be. I, I thought you were working on some TV show. Uh, huh? well, that's the one I was writing. You mean that yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah, no, so I'm this writing is, that. This that's is like, a different. Yeah, no, that's a, dra- that's a dark comedy, very dark. <laughs> yeah. It's set in a funeral home. So, and I've got experience because I'm a marriage celebrant and I got convinced by my neighbour to do her mother's funeral. I went, I, I, I don't do funerals. I'm a marriage celebrant. She said, exactly, you can do funerals. 
and she was glamorous like you and you're the only one that can do it and she talked me into it and I went yeah I get it now and then family members passed and they got me to do it and then while in lockdown I did a funeral celebrant course because I thought I may as well I had done six or seven funerals but I knew what I was doing and it was doing that course that these ideas for a series came up because the people were so quirky and the stories it's set in a funeral home and there's a, a bar that they all go to called Unhappy Hour. And <laughs> every episode, you know, everything kind of resolves itself in Unhappy Hour. And every funeral is a culturally different funeral. So I'm like down the rabbit hole Googling, you know, Chinese funerals and Jewish funerals and Indian funerals and Indigenous funerals. So it's, it's really colourful. Yeah. I'll get back to doing that. Did they do any Bollywood dancing at an Indian funeral, I wonder? I don't know, but you'd want to. Oh, yeah. Well, it'd certainly give it a bit of colour and spice. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they certainly do in Indigenous, well, Australian First Nation funerals they do. There's lots of music and dance and, you know, it's got sex, drugs and rock and roll in it. It's pretty edgy. Well, funerals have yeah. gone from being a really sad occasion now to being a celebration of someone's life, mm-hmm. haven't they? Absolutely. You know, Dale Ryder, our friend from Boom Crash, he asked me yeah. to officiate his mother-in-law's funeral and it was a celebration and it was, you know, joy looking at the beautiful life of that person. So it's a really fine balance. You know, you've got to find the balance and, um, you know, that it's got the gravitas of that person and really telling the story of that person but bringing it towards the celebration of their life. And I think we all, you know, we need them. We need the closure and we need, even in Olivia's memorial, I just talked about some funny things and so did John and Olivia. You need to. You need to sort of balance it and lighten it up a bit so we're not going to fuses. can get quite quite um, quite sad. Yeah, it's, so, hard, it's hard not to get drawn into that though, isn't it? Yeah, but it's. I think, that's why I think I, I actually think I sit in it quite well being able to do funerals. I can sit in that space, which surprised me, but now it doesn't now that I've you know, done quite a few. Toddy, when are you writing a book? When are you going to write a book about your life? Because I reckon it'd be fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Do you know, a lot of people ask me to. I've been approached by publishing companies. I bet you have. And I'm just like, everyone's got a story. Mine's not that much more bloody interesting. I mean, yes, Olivia's famous. And, yes, my mother left when I was really young, her sister. I was like two. And it has been quirky. You know, my dad had a very quirky life. He married a lot of people and had a lot of babies and I was brought up on the smell of beer in the carpet as I walked down from the top of the pub where we lived to <laughs> left in my school uniform. So it wasn't like your normal kind of life, but everyone's got something. But if I could turn it into something that could be useful for people, because otherwise I don't see the point, if I could help people, if my journey could help. I mean, there's a lot of people that's parents leave and that is a tough one. You are left with triggers, let's call it triggers, you know, abandonment issues. Mm. And I, if I can help people with that, I've, I've navigated my way through that. And so if I could be useful and helpful, then it would be worth it. But if you look at where you are now and where you came from and all that and what you've been through to there, that is, that is a hell of a story. Maybe, maybe. Oh, look at you! Look at you being humble. Huh. No, I don't know. It's but, Bryce, you look at your own life, and it seems normal to you, right? That's yeah. not normal. It's like within my experience, I know it's not normal. I used to be very attracted to 
all my friends at school that had their mum and dad together and all the siblings and they lived at home and they ate breakfast together and dinner together. I didn't experience any of that. And so I was always very drawn to people that had these supposedly very normal lives. But underneath that, you don't know all the bullshit that they go through either. Yeah. The appearances. And I've got to say, since Dad passed away and there was a bit of a fear in me that my family might dissipate, my eight siblings, but we're actually really close. And I'm I'm really proud of all of us because a lot of people fall apart when the parents die and especially if they've come from a lot of different marriages. And, you know, we... I spent the week, you know, Easter weekend with my little sister that was from Dad's third wife and I took my nieces up there. So we all hung out for the weekend. You know, like we, uh, that's a part of my family that I'm really proud of, that we mm. pull together and we support each other. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, we have our fights. That's, we're normal, we're healthy. But underneath that is this incredible sense of loyalty and there's a, a bond and it didn't matter what parent you came from. Yeah. Good so sense of family. Would, yeah. And I, yeah, I'm very protective of my family. I love them. Oh, okay. so that's, that, almost that, the new, that's almost the new normal now, isn't it, in many ways? Yeah. And it wasn't when I was, I was born in 62, so it wasn't the normal. My sister and I, we went to a private school called Merton Hall and it was Church of England school and it was huge because they had borders and everything. And there was only Fiona and I that were Jewish and one other set of sisters, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism, like kids throwing one-cent pieces in front of us. And just so culturally it was very um, naive. And kids can be horrible, let's face it. Mm. Kids yeah. can be really freaking horrible. And I think the world is much more accepting of minority groups now. And I, I am from a minority group. I don't look it but I am, and I'm even more so now that I'm 60 in this industry and that's a minority group. I haven't faded away. I haven't dulled myself down. I haven't pulled back. I keep moving in to my age. Yeah. And I think that's a minority and hopefully that's a great message for women. If, you know, you don't have to suddenly not be sexy or sassy or bright or vibrant when you become older, you know, 50 plus, and I'm now sick, you know, I, I turned 60 last year. So hopefully I have a good message there. But you are sexy and vibrant and all of the things that you said that you're not. No, but I'm saying women shouldn't feel they can't be. Bryce. Oh, okay, yeah. What I was saying was I hope, I hope me moving into my age and not dumbing yeah. myself down is a good message for women. Yeah, I see. I understand. Uh, I'm not yeah, going to no, cut my hair off and not wear heels and a, a fitted dress or whatever and feel like a sensual woman. I, I, yeah. I refuse to buy into that story that we're meant to disappear. And No, I agree. I often feel like a sensual woman and um, <laughs> it's, it's not really working out that way, but um, I often feel like a sensual woman and... Uh, We'll just keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. <laughs> uh, now, Toddy, now the story Brian love, loves to tell is you being the makeup artist on the countdown shows and and doing Brian Brian's makeup. Oh yeah, well, it started with Renee Gaya actually. 
So this was 2006 and um, Gadinsky, God rest that man's soul, geez, he was brilliant, and Molly Meldrum um, put a show on, the, you know, the Countdown Tour, and they did a couple, but we were on the first one, weren't we, Prizey? Well, that was the best the originals, one. Originals, the best one. And so I'm, you know, we're all hanging around, we're all travelling on planes and buses and everything together and they're herding us like cats, which is very hard to herd musicians. And um, I remember the first, I was watching Renee at Soundcheck for our first show and just she just melts me, mind-blowing. And then on, the, on that night she put on some red lipstick but her hair looked like shit, her makeup looked like shit, and they had these massive screens. You could see everything. So after the show, this is me not knowing that Renee Gale was so-called scary. Right? <laughs> so I went up as, like, the sister and I just went, Renee, you know, like, can I just have a play with your hair and makeup? Because, you know, those screens out there are massive and it, it just didn't look great. And she just looked at me and then, oh. okay, gave me her room number because we were staying in the same hotel so that the next night before the show I went in there and I went in with my blow dryer and my round brush and my Velcros and my makeup kit and I did her hair and did her makeup and she went from this kind of scary woman into this beautiful, soft, she was like putty in my hands. I don't think people, because she did come across as intimidating, I don't think people got in because they treated her like someone a bit scary and because I didn't know she was, she wasn't to me. And we became really, really great mates on that tour and we talked about, because she's Jewish as well and her mother was in Auschwitz and we had stories that we could share and she was nurtured. I nurtured her. And she used to love getting her makeup done and having chats before each show. Then the next thing, I get, get Brizy in the chair. I'm going to the boys going... I, I remember James Rain. He pushed back more than anyone. He was like, I'm not wearing fruit and makeup. I'm going, James, you can see every pore when you're up on that stage. It's like the next thing is in the chair. <laughs> I was doing, like, in the end I had to schedule everybody. It, it was really good fun. So that was sort of gave me something to do hanging backstage as well. I had Trixie sell on. But I always did Brizey's makeup. When we did gigs together with Ab 80s, I was out with his coal and doing his sheep bones. Do you remember when <laughs> squeezed a blackhead and we oh, yeah. filmed it on social media? <laughs> yeah, I remember. Oh. I've forgotten, but now I remember. It was no good. I said, Brizey, you cannot go on stage with that. And I, <laughs> I got some toilet paper and I was at it in the bathroom. Oh. That gave me so much joy. <laughs> you can only do it to people you love. I could not do a strangers. No, well, I appreciate it. There are people in the industry who'd like to squeeze Brian's head, not just a black head. <laughs> just going back to Renee, how you said, you know, you said that, you know, I was terrified of her and you said you went into a room with a blow dryer. That's quite unusual. Most people would go into a room with a blow torch and, um, you know, well done for you. Fantastic. <laughs> Do you know what? At the On the last night, Kedinsky, Michael, he he had like a drinks thing. It was dry backstage because the, most people are either NA, AA, current alcoholics or whatever, and he needed to get, how many acts were there, Brizey? There was a lot. Oh, about 30, I reckon. So it was dry backstage, so we were literally sneaking in brown paper bags with alcohol in it. 
and he turned a blind eye. But anyway, on the last night and Rene wasn't there, he um, he was doing a speech and then he actually awarded me because he said it was like Taming of the Shrew. He said <laughs> Rene had never been so happy, easy to be around. And do you know what? All it took was a bit of love. Even I ended up getting on well with her, which was really surprising to me. But she she did mellow a bit on that tour and I probably credit it all to you. I gave her some nurture. Well, there you go. There's, uh, there's a lesson for everybody. And all the women that are listening to us understand when your hair's been blow-dried, it's like, oh, you kind of melt and your makeup being done, if you've ever had it done, it's really, you feel really nurtured. It's beautiful. Oh, especially when they dig your blackheads out. That's when it really gets fun. Oh, yes. Prizy, oh, you're the only one I've done. No, Frank McCoy from the Chantuzies. I did his blackheads too. You're the only oh. two. Well, I feel, I feel honoured. Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> Hey, Todd, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, and I know we've jiggled around to make this happen, but, uh, no, really appreciate you spending some time with us. It's great. Oh, it's been fun. I'm going to go back to packing my bags for my barra fishing now. Beautiful. We're putting in my heels. I'm going to go and vomit at the thought of Brian's blackhead, but never mind. <laughs> I, I feel like a sensual woman. I'm going to see if I can find one. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Thanks, Toddy. Thank you. Bye, guys. Great to thanks, see you. Thanks, Toddy. Take care. Bye. See you. Lovely toddy with the Shantuzies, and of course uh, we uh, know that uh, Eve is doing some uh, some new music. So I'll be talking to Eve again soon about some of the new stuff that she's doing. And of course you uh, you perform quite often with uh, with Ali as part of the uh, the eighties. 
Absolutely, I do, I show. do indeed. I'm yeah. familiar with all of the girls, and they're they're wonderful people. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, sure, that's exactly how they'd like to be referred to. I'm familiar with all the girls. Oh, <laughs> familiar. Terrific. I was familiar. Uh, I was familiar with all of the girls. Hang on, That'd I'm, be great. I'm just calling the lawyers now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're they're going to have an intervention order ready within 15 seconds. They do a microwave version, specially for you. Now we're going to get to Jesse Colin Young shortly, but. But first, Brian. Well, on the weekend, I uh, just gone. I had to go to Yupoon to uh, do a gig up there, and it was it was terrific. And lovely people in Yupoon, and I'd never been there before. It's a beautiful spot, just south of Rocky. Really yeah, it's fantastic, and um, so that was good. But when I was at Brisbane Airport, I bumped into John Stevens, and um, you know. I was talking to him and he'd done a charity gig in Brisbane's acoustic show or something for to raise money for some charity. I said, oh, yeah, that guy's, oh, yeah, and he only did five songs. And then his mate said, said, oh, we did a um, couple of Tina Turner songs because, you know, you know what's happened. And I said, oh, yeah, did you do any Rolf Harris songs as well? Oh. Well, they thought that was pretty funny. So did I, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, if you're going to play dead people's songs, well, get them all in, you know, a couple of two, Tommy Kangaroo Downsport and Two Little Boys, followed by Simply the Best and um, Private Dancer. There you go. There's your set. Right. <laughs> the, I'm not I sure. Think, th- uh, John, John said he couldn't find a wobble board. I think yeah, that was the problem. Fair enough. I can understand that. Uh, yeah, right. uh, I can certainly understand that. Yes, I'm not sure that's going to catch on, though, Brian, but we'll see. Keep, work, keep workshopping it and get back to us. Well, I'll tell you, that guy that wrote uh, I Am Woman, what's his name, Ray Burton? He looks remarkably like Rolf. I oh, have to admit you're right. Rolf Harris yes. show, no problem, no problem at all. Uh, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of call for that either. But let's get to our next mm. guest who is Jesse Colin Young, the man behind the Young Bloods, uh, behind that fabulous song Get Together. Uh, let's have a chat to Jess. All right. Hello and, and thank you for agreeing to have a chat with me. Well, my pleasure. You look to be in a, a nice place there. I'm in Hawaii. Beautiful. We have a little farm here. We've had a coffee farm for 40 years anyway. We honeymooned here. Connie and I decided to get married. We had been together a couple of years. And I said, let's get married in Hawaii. And she thought that was a great idea. So we came here to this island to look for places to uh, stay for her family. You know, she's got a bunch of siblings and and this wonderful angel of a real estate agent saying, there is a farm you have to look at. I mean, can we rent it? No. Well, we don't need to. And the whole time we were looking, she was saying, there's a farm you have to look at. So on our way out of here in those days, um, you had to fly out of Hilo. We said, we'll stop by on the way out. And we stopped by and we started walking around this place and, you know, we fell in love. And we're eaten alive by mosquitoes <laughs> because we were fresh off the mainland. And that, that, that's what happens when you bring new blood, the mosquitoes now. So <laughs> I'm looking out at the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Very nice indeed. And and you you sell the coffee. I, I noticed on the website there's – we can buy the yes, Jesse yeah, Colin Young great. coffee beans. Yes, and that's been going for probably since uh, 91 or 92, but there's a rust – that came to the island, I don't know, three or four years ago, and we hoped it wouldn't get to us, but it did, so it wiped out the crop. Oh, okay. 
So let's talk about what you're up to these days musically. I mean, the last, the, the Highway Troubadour album is your 22nd solo album. I think maybe even more. Some of them haven't been counted. I think it's up there about 28. Wow. But yeah, first time I've recorded solo since I was 20. Yeah. Talk about Highway Troubadour first. Let's talk about, uh, you know. Sure. Work, working, with your, working with your daughter and your son has been obviously a rejuvenation of sorts. It's, it's natural for me. I, I worked with my Connie's and my kids are uh, uh, my youngest. Yep. And I worked with the oldest kids, my, and my godson and my blood son, Cheyenne and Ethan. We played together or toured around 2000, 2001, 2002 for two or three years. And it felt really good. Sometimes my daughter would, Julie would come and sing with me. And so then I, had a second family and I always hoped I would have a child with my mother's voice and, and Jazzy is that child. Now your mother had perfect pitch, didn't she? Yes. Irritating. She said it was irritating, you know, because she was a violinist. (laughs) It's a gift. I mean, if if anything else, I mean, it's an annoyance maybe, but it's a gift, isn't it? Yeah. It's a gift. And for her, yeah, it just annoyed her because no, you know, if you play in amateur orchestras and string sections, you drift in and out of tune. Then. Yeah. Was it a, an intimidating thing for you as, as when you were coming up, starting to make your way musically, that your, your mother could sing like that? <laughs> no. No, my sister could sing. My dad could sing. And we spent a lot of time as a child singing. No TV in the house till I was 10 which was a great gift. And my father played the piano and we sang around the piano. We sang in the car. That's how we entertained each other. So, What were the songs that, that kind of turned you on to music? Was, were there, was it songs or was it that, that kind of group family thing? What, what got you into the music? When I was seven, this record player appeared in my room and it was a room I shared with my sister, but there were a couple of Glenn Miller tunes these, on these 78 records. Yeah. And there was a record of Sir Harry Lauder, who is a Scottish folk singer, a Caruso record with the arias that just stood the hair up on the back of my neck. And this record that came free with this RCA Victrola of Tex Ritter singing things like rye whiskey. That's how I started off. I mean, I tried a lot of jobs when I was in my late teens. I couldn't stay in college. I was too restless and... Um, always feeling like I was not quite in the right place. And when I finally realized that the only thing I really loved uh, that I could possibly make a living at was music. I was in Greenwich Village going to NYU and all I had to do was drop out of school and make enough money to to live. And uh, I could do that in those basket houses in Greenwich Village. Yeah, I mean, hot dogs were in the street. I lived on street hot dogs. They were only a dollar a piece, you know. So I, I mean, if I could make four or five dollars at, at the basket house, I could eat a couple of meals, and there, there it was. So in those early days, what sort of music were you playing? Well, I was listening to folk music mostly, yeah. country blues. I was listening to Lightning Hopkins. I got to meet Lightning and, and become friends with him. I was a great admirer. There's a song on Soul of a City Boy that I wrote for him in his style. So the Youngbloods kind of uh, evolved out of out of that Greenwich Village experience? Yes. Um, actually, I played most of my gigs in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, 
So I played a lot in Cambridge and none of that started really without Bobby Scott and making the first record, you know, without a record out, you can play in the, in the nice clubs. Yeah. Nobody knew who you were. You got to make a record, get on the radio. And that happened through family. That happened through my sister, who's who was afraid when I dropped out of college that I would starve to death. And she was married to a CBS newsman, John Kelly. And she said, somebody at CBS must know someone in the music business who could happen so he could have an audition. That's what happened. I, I went over to, uh, to CBS and played for a man whose name is escaping me at this moment live audition in his office you know at 11 o'clock in the morning uh-huh. and he just looked at me and smiled and said i know who would love you and he sent me to bobby scott who was working for bobby darren who had a publishing company in the brill building in manhattan and i went and played for him and he said god he smiled and laughed and said you are so ignorant i love it <laughs> he said you know, when you play uh, these songs, even the ones you've written, one versus 12 bars, the other one's seven and a half bars, and then the chorus comes in sometimes, or not, or it's longer. He said, you're not used to playing with other people, are you? And I said, no, I've, I've never played with other people. I just sat around in my room and played. And, hmm. uh, you know, a few times with my friends. And, but he knew, he knew I was ready. I didn't know I was ready. Hmm. You know, and a week later, I I walked into um, the studio. A life-changing moment, obviously. Yeah, I had to borrow a guitar. My guitar was in hock. (laughs) But we had a recording session, and I, of course, never done that. And uh, he just said, hey, kid, how you feeling? I said, I'm a little nervous, you know, but uh, I'm ready. He said, just sit over there in front of that mic and play everything you know. And four hours later, I mean, he hardly interrupted me because something was going on. I mean, we had some magic happening and I had gotten into some, you know, I'd never played for four hours straight in my life. He pulled the best off that record and Solo City Boy was done. Then everything started to roll. And as I played the Club 47 that second time, I got a little message from Jerry Corbett, who I had met, it said, don't go home, uh, come to my place. So somebody, wherever I was staying, that fellow was in the midst of getting busted and Jerry heard about it. And so I went to his house and I stayed at his house and we started playing on the back porch. He was part of the Cambridge folk scene. He's from Omega, Georgia. And he's a wonderful picker, especially ragtime. So we started playing together and he started singing with me and that you know, he could sing harmonies with me without without knowing when I was going to start the next line. He had some kind of GPS in him that enabled him to do that. And I've heard other singers do it, but I haven't worked with many harmony singers besides Jerry. So the Beatles were there and uh, Ad is convinced that just because it yeah, it's a band, it doesn't mean it has to be stupid music. It could be smart music, yeah. soulful music and music about what's going on in the world. And so we went and bought two DeArmond pickups and one amp and plugged in and went and started playing shows together. Wow. And pretty, it was time for Banana and Joe, who were neighbors of Corbett, and there was a young blitz. Wow. And you, you kind of found get together in a happenstance kind of way, didn't you? 
Absolutely. So I convinced them all to, to come to New York and we're all living on the Lower East Side. And I got a manager at this point and um, we got a job at the Cafe of Go-Go, opening shows from whom, whomever was a headline act. It's wonderful. I, I got to see Paul Butterfield there, Muddy Waters. I got to open for Muddy Waters. Oh, that's one of my all-time heroes. Hmm. So one Sunday I was, I was over in the village. I walked by the go-go and thought, you know, maybe they're the reason we played there. Cause they only paid us $20 a piece was we had free rehearsal time. And I mean, we couldn't afford to rent a rehearsal studio for like four or five hours a day. I mean, it, there was no money for that. So here we are with a stage with monitors. I was hoping it was dark so I could call the band and we could rehearse. Cause I mean, I, here I am. I've just switched instruments. I'm playing the bass, uh, which I had never played before, but we needed a bass player. And we had three guitar players and no bass player. And so I'm really needing to rehearse more so than anyone. <laughs> and I walked down the stairs and I, I, there were two flights. The first flight I went down and I heard some music and I said, oh, they're having an open mic. Damn. <laughs> I mean, usually I would have turned around and gone home and practiced. But for some reason, you know, I think an angel took me by the shoulder and pushed me along down the stairs. And I came to the beaded curtain and there was Buzzy Landhart on stage, whom I had seen like playing vibes with Tim Harden. I didn't know he was a songwriter. And there he was singing uh, with his trio, Get Together. Get Together went through me like a knife. I just ran backstage, asked Buzzy to write the lyrics out for me. You know, I felt my life change. Just I knew all of a sudden in my body that this was the way. This I was going to follow this song and and love it as I have and still do. And that that was it. No more angry young man stuff. <laughs> Did you do much to the song? I mean, Chet Powers, who wrote it. Was a was a muso, uh, and I know you met him at one stage. But did you did you do much to the song when you went in to record it? No, I mean I took it into rehearsal the next day. What I could remember of it, I remembered. I had a had a wonderful memory in those days. So the melody might be a teeny bit different than what Bez, Buzzy sang, but Buzzy heard it from Dino in a coffee house, and I heard Dino re- record a couple of times, and it was uh, and every time it was different. So. <laughs> I think I just fell in love with it. We rehearsed it a lot. And I think the guys in the band understood that this was something special. When I listen to the record, I hear them, Corbett and Banana, who were not terribly close, playing guitars together, just really, really together. Yeah. And your your vocal on it is just just magnificent. It's just it's it it fits it so well you couldn't imagine it in any other way. That's love. I mean, I've thought about it. I remember some, when I was doing an interview with BAI, that fella said, you know, there's something pure about it. And I said, you know, that must be, it was five and a half minutes. Nobody thought it would ever be a single. Hmm. It was done out of love and done out of, I mean, the song is gorgeous. Yeah, it is. I mean, it would be hard for me to talk this way about it. I mean, I'm just in... uh, Love is but a song we sing, fears the way we die. I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. the first 15 seconds. And I was, I was hooked. I said, that's the kind of music I want to. So, yeah, the band came together in 
bands do come together and then come apart. But uh, for that song, that magic, it's love. Yeah. I st- you know, I love it every time I sing it. You recorded it in 67, but didn't become a, a, a smash hit until 69. After you'd recorded it and it became, I think, a bit of a hit around places and got sort of mid-chart in uh, on Billboard and stuff, did you did you think, oh, that's it? Or No, I don't think because it was a hit in San Francisco. Yeah. It changed our lives. We flew in to play the Avalon Ballroom. June 15th, 1967, we had a hit on the radio and we had no idea that we did. Nobody was communicating with us. And I mean, I walked into this cheap hotel <laughs> um, right down the street from the Avalon, put my bag down, turned on the radio and there was get together. I mean, that before I went to the sound check, I knew, oh my God, we're on the radio. And I mean, it's hard to get on the radio. <laughs> um, and the place was full. And we were playing to much smaller crowds back home in New York. And the love that came off that crowd, you know, the audiences in those days, the music was, I would call it sacred. Something happens between the audiences in those days and the band where they become like one. They are partners in the the creation of the music in that particular performance. And uh, I had never experienced that, you know, San Francisco. There was there was a bit going on in San Francisco in 1967. It'd be fair to say. Oh, it was amazing. So I mean, we didn't know we were walking into the to the summer of love. But yeah. All of a sudden, I knew what get together was for. We all knew it was for this. Now, how far this would go? It was so beautiful just to be there and to be able to find to find a place where you could make a living and just play your music. I mean, we went home and packed up. We finished a record. Finished Earth Music at RCA with Felix Papalardi and uh, and then we all packed up and moved to uh, Point Reyes, which was about 35 miles north of San Francisco, out in the country. Once again, get together just changed our lives. We got to live in the country and have these little rental houses. I had one over Tamales Bay, just beautiful, inexpensive. Yeah. Gorgeous. It, it's 2023 and uh, the song is still... I guess along maybe with Scott McKenzie's San Francisco, the, the signature tune of that of that era, of that group of people, of that time in, in American history, uh, in music history, such a, a pillar of that, that time, um, yet it still sounds fantastic when you hear the song now played on the radio these days. Do you marvel at that or how do you feel about that? Yeah, I marvel at it. I mean, we really need it. We need it. <laughs> I don't know. We need it now than more than we ever have, certainly yeah, in a, and not only in America, which is a kind of a, in a mess now because of such polarization. You know, I never would have dreamed that we would, although we were polarized in 1967, but that's because they were trying to draft us. Yeah, and we were thinking it's it's not a righteous war, and I, I did not want to go. But that was up to the draft board. I just, I had childhood asthma, and that was enough to keep me out of the draft. Oh, okay. I, yeah, it was a, it was a, a difficult difficult time. You you were kind of, uh, I guess, in many ways, you, you sort of stood on your on your ground with the with the industry in terms of putting mm-hmm. up with how a lot of people had been treated by the industry in the, in those days in terms of publishing deals and songwriting deals and going on TV shows and 
and and being treated badly. Did did you feel like a, a bit of a a sort of a flag bearer in that way for some of the, the musicians of the time? Well, I think I was, but I mean, I wasn't really conscious of it. Yeah. My manager had said to me in the beginning, which is probably the smartest thing he ever did, you should have your own publishing company. Don't give your publishing away. And they didn't insist on it in those days. So then when we realized that they were making $50,000 for letting get together be used in a movie and, and other young blood music, so we, you know, we took them to court. I mean, it cost us a lot. We had to give away part of our earnings for life. <laughs> but we were able to become actual partners with RCA and get half of those fees that were such big, you know, bonuses. Was the success a, 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 a millstone around your neck in some ways, the success of Get Together, or was it, how, did, how did that kind of play it for you? Because I'm imagining that the, the record company would have been, can you do us another one of those? <laughs> well, we tried, I mean, but um, and Elephant Mountain was the last record we did for them. And Corbett quit like two songs in. Uh, I think he came to, yeah, two songs in and he just said, I'm not coming. I can't, I can't get on a plane again. It scares me to death and I quit. That was okay. But it was weird. The song has opened uh, not only doors for you in a showbiz sense, but in a in a life sense too, as it should, because it's just, uh, as I said, stands the test of time like very, very few other songs in the ethos do. Yes, when it came out the second time, it would not have come out. You know, it paved the way for Woodstock. Yep. Because it came out that spring, which was, what, 69? Yep. And the man who was responsible was named Augie Bloom. He was the head of RCA's promotion. And he went in and said, okay, guys, now is the time for Get Together. We're going to re-release it. And they said, sorry, Augie, we don't do that. And he said, you do it or you kiss me goodbye. <laughs> he was the, one of the best promo men in the business. And they wouldn't lose him. So they said, ah, go ahead. If you must, go on. So Augie knew. Augie put his job on the line. Yeah, America was finally ready for, for Get Together. That spirit had been growing since 67. No, we thank him for that. Good on him. Good job. And uh, and I just want to say th- <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Jesse. It's been uh, it's been lovely catching up and having a chat. Thank you so much. Hey, take care of yourself. Uh, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. You too, mate. A song we sing Fears we will die You can make the mountains ring Or make the angels cry Though the bird is on the wing And you may not know why
When the one that left us yet Returns for us at last We are but a moment sunlight Fading in the grass Come on people now Smile on your brother Everybody get together Just one of the great songs of the late 60s uh, get-together by the Young Bloods. It was fabulous to catch up with uh, Jesse Colin Young. Now, Brian, we're going to finish uh, the two ways we finish the podcast these days is either with a new song by someone or something we've got out of the archives of the Brian Mannix Hall of Fame, uh, you know, dusty old things at the back of the wardrobe. Yeah, this is a dust really old one. I think I well, wrote this in about 1982. All right, it's called This Dream. Tell us the story behind mm. it. Um. I think it was basically because I was kind of frustrated that, you know, we weren't getting a record deal and, you know, we were sort of – we were ambitious. So I think the song's really about amb- ambition and how ambition can 
not always work out the way you want yeah. and can be quite frustrating sometimes. Um, however, we stuck with it and we did, eventually did have success. But this song was a just a song that I wrote about the situation I felt that we were in at the time. And it's I, the X-Men used to play it live, but then we wrote 50 years, or I wrote 50 years, so how about me? Um, <laughs> and then we didn't, we didn't have, oh, Ronnie wrote the bridge, big deal. Um, but uh, we didn't have room in the set to play This Dream and 50. You can't have two Yeah, because so, um, when I had to listen to it, it sounds to me like a song that came before 50 years, which clearly now, as you pointed out, it has. That that was the sequence that it came in. Yeah, that's right. It was, um, it was the ballad before 50 years and... Um, so naturally, the X Men sort of swept to the side, but I always thought it was a good song. And uh, so when I did a solo album, I thought, well, I'm, I'm putting that song on it. And, you know, it was recorded on an eight track with a bit of sequencing. So it was pretty primitive recording that we recorded it on. I don't know if the production still holds up today, but I think it's a really nice song. And, um, oh, you know, I'm just grateful that somebody will get to hear it. All right, we're going to play it. Play it right now. Once again, thanks to our very good friends at Mercots. That's uh, mercots.edu.au, or you can give them a call. 1300 555 That number again, Kev. 1300 555 Now you've got to bring you got to bring the mood down because you're going into a ballad. So you got to you got to bring the mood down oh. now. Okay, so that's okay. you got to get the rhythm. That's it. Thank you, Evelyn, and we shall uh, see you next time on the podcast. Take care of yourself until then. We finish with This Dream by Brian Mannix. Rock on.
Dahil 